The Republic. Written and narrated by Christopher Vale. Theme song Lionheart by John Wright. Book available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com. Chapter 11. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. Thomas Jefferson stood tall, overlooking the crowd that anxiously listened to his inaugural address. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists, the newly elected president remarked, hinting to Alexander Hamilton and his compatriots that the days of party bickering were over. Jefferson and the Republicans would not seek revenge for the Alien and Sedition Acts, now that they held the reins of power. Adams' conclusion of the treaty with France assured Jefferson that he would be taking the helm during a time of international peace. However, soon after his inauguration, the Bashaw of the Barbary state of Tripoli, in modern-day Libya, on the North African coast, declared war on the United States. There were four Barbary states, Morocco, Algiers, Tunis, and Tripoli. These states are noted for their hostility to the Christian name and for their piracies exercised chiefly in the Mediterranean Sea against all Christian powers which do not purchase their forbearance by a disgraceful tribute, stated a book of the era titled Geography or a Description of the World. In other words, these pirates extorted Christian nations by attacking their ships and enslaving their crews if the nation did not pay a bribe. It seemed the Bashaw of Tripoli had discovered that the Americans were paying less tribute to him than they were to the Bashaw of Algiers, and he was not happy. Jefferson had warned Adams not to pay bribes to these pirates, but Adams had ignored his warning. Jefferson intended to do what he thought should have been done all along, send the U.S. Navy to patrol the Mediterranean and destroy any pirate ship they came across. In fact, Jefferson had been pushing for building a strong navy to patrol the American trade routes since 1784. He had no intention of paying one penny in tribute and instead ordered the navy to blockade Tripoli. The navy sailed to the Mediterranean and in August of 1801, the USS Enterprise attacked and defeated the pirate ship Tripoli near Malta. Jefferson wrote Captain Andrew Sterrett stating, Too long have these barbarians been suffered to trample on the sacred faith of treaties, on the rights and laws of human nature. You have shown to your countrymen that that enemy cannot meet bravery and skill united. The Americans then blockaded the Tripoli Harbor to bring the pirates to heel. By 1802, however, the French had supplied the Tripolitans with a 14-gun corsair, 
and the pirates had purchased another 16-gun ship from the British with money they had received from tribute paid by the Swedes and Danes. With this additional naval power, the pirates began to turn the tides against the fledgling American fleet. In response, Jefferson was forced to purchase and construct four brand new 16-gun warships, and in 1803, they sailed for the Mediterranean. Before the additional ships arrived, however, the USS Philadelphia, a large frigate, ran aground on some rocks in 12 feet of water while chasing a pirate cruiser. The Philadelphia came under fire and Captain William Bainbridge had no choice but to surrender his ship and his 300 sailors. As the 1804 election was rapidly approaching, the Federalist newspapers attacked Jefferson's handling of the Barbary situation and the loss of the Philadelphia. Republicans fired back strongly with a headline of their own claiming millions to be spent on defense but not a cent for tribute, reminding the nation that it had been the policy of Federalist President John Adams to pay bribes to the pirates. With the support of Commodore Preble, Jefferson sought to reduce Tripoli. To do so, they first needed to destroy the Philadelphia, as they could not leave a ship that powerful in the hands of pirates. While captured in Tripoli, Captain Bainbridge was acting as a spy, sending coded letters to Preble. In his letters, Bainbridge informed the Commodore that the Philadelphia was moored in 12 feet of water inside the harbor. He believed that six to eight boats with experienced and daring crews could sneak into the harbor by pretending to be friendly trading ships. Once inside the harbor, the Americans could destroy not only the Philadelphia, but all of the nearby pirate cruisers as well. Preble selected Lieutenant Stephen Decatur, a dashing 25-year-old sailor from Pennsylvania, to lead the raid to board and burn the Philadelphia. Decatur and 70 sailors and marine volunteers sailed to the Mediterranean aboard a converted Tripolitan ship renamed the Intrepid. Under cover of darkness, on the night of February 16, 1804, the Intrepid slipped into the harbor at Tripoli, followed by the USS Siren, which would provide covering fire. Decatur's sailors and marines were hidden below deck, leaving only two men dressed as Turks above deck and visible to the pirates. Decatur called out to the harbor pilot in French, claiming that his ship had run the blockade and was bringing provisions, but had lost both of its anchors and needed to tie to the Philadelphia for the night. The Intrepid was brought alongside the Philadelphia and the crew began boarding it. Guards aboard the Philadelphia recognized the sailors immediately and shouted that they were being attacked by Americanos! The Americans quickly overtook the guards in close combat and then set the ship on fire. The sailors and marines scrambled back aboard the Intrepid as quickly as they could and the ship began to pull away from the Philadelphia. The pirates in the fort shot down at the Intrepid as the Americans desperately tried to sail out of the harbor with the guns of the siren covering their escape. Suddenly, the flames aboard the Philadelphia reached the magazine and the ship went up in a great explosion. In the chaos that ensued, Decatur and his men were able to slip away without losing a single man. The Bashaw watched the entire episode unfold in front of him, but he was powerless to stop it. The successful raid soon won Decatur acclaim not only at home, 
where national pride soared as he was hailed a great hero, but also abroad. Lord Nelson, of the British Admiralty, referred to the naval raid as the most bold and daring act of the age. In November of that same year, the Tripolitan Bashaw's brother, Hammett, wrote to Jefferson. He explained that he was the rightful heir in Tripoli, but his brother Yusuf had seized power and forced Hammett to flee. Hammett promised Jefferson that if the Americans would help him reclaim the throne of Tripoli, he would return the prisoners and enter into a treaty without payment for tribute. Meanwhile, Preble was determined to destroy the pirates' fleet and shore defenses. The following summer, August of 1804, he sent Decatur back into the harbor with six American gunboats to fight 19 Tripolitan gunboats, a brig, two schooners, and a galley. The Americans pounded Tripoli for two hours from within the harbor. Decatur was once again successful as his boats demolished the enemy, capturing two gunboats, sinking another, and badly damaging the rest. Happy to have given the enemy a devastating blow, Decatur began to lead the small fleet from the harbor when he learned his brother James had been killed while boarding an enemy ship. Decatur's blood began to boil as his face turned red with rage and he demanded to know who had killed his brother. Returning to the harbor, Decatur found the killer, a giant Turk, gripping a heavily ironed boarding pike. Decatur dashed toward the pirate, his cutlass in hand. The giant swung the heavy pike, clanging against Decatur's cutlass and breaking the blade off at the hilt. Decatur's eyes popped wide as the Turk thrust his weapon into the flesh of the now defenseless American. Decatur screamed in agony as he tore the pike from his wound and leapt upon the pirate, toppling the giant man to the ground. While Decatur grappled upon the deck with the giant, another pirate rushed at him from behind, swinging his cutlass at Decatur's head. However, a young American sailor flung himself in between the pirate and Decatur, taking the blow himself and saving his commander. The giant Turk had managed to push Decatur off of him and stood drawing a long, shining dagger as he did so. He charged Decatur, releasing a blood-curdling howl as he swung his dagger downward. Before he could be stabbed, however, Decatur managed to pull a small pistol from his pocket and fire. The giant collapsed, dead, his weight crashing on top of Decatur. Decatur managed to push the giant's body off and regain his feet. He stood and surveyed the deck. Dead pirates lay all around, and Decatur was once again proclaimed the hero of the war. A month later, in September of 1804, the American fleet received reinforcements and Jefferson was ready to support Hammett in his attempt to retake the throne of Tripoli. By February of 1805, Hammett had assembled an army of hundreds of Arabs, being paid for by the United States, and Jefferson had agreed to support him with naval firepower. Jefferson also assigned William Eaton, who had served as a captain in the army and as consul to the Barbary state of Tunis, to command the mission. Eaton brought just ten Americans with him, eight marines, and two sailors. The plan was a dangerous one. On March 8th, Eden would lead the force 500 miles across the Libyan desert to attack the Tripolitan port city of Dern, about 400 miles from the city of Tripoli. While this was extremely dangerous, it also gave the army the element of surprise as the defenders believed only a madman 
would attempt to cross the desert to attack them from the rear. The army nearly fell apart and ran the serious risk of starvation and mutiny along the way across the desert, but they finally reached Dern on April 27th. While Eaton's force attacked by land, three American ships hammered the defensive port from the sea. Then the ships fired on the beach, clearing it of defenders so that Eaton and the ten Americans could enter the fort and raise the American flag. While the Americans were taking the fort, Hammett and his Arab troops came upon the defenders on the other side. With Eaton and his men firing on the pirates from the fort, the Tripolitan defenders were caught in a crossfire and had to keep their heads down and not return fire. By four that afternoon, a wounded Eaton and his army had taken the town of Dern. Only one American and ten Arabs had died in the assault. Despite being wounded, Eaton considered marching on to Tripoli, but was apprehensive about how well Hammett's Arabs would do. During the battle for Dern, the Arabs had stayed in safe positions until the area was secure and would not come out until they had the opportunity to plunder when they suddenly became at once brave. Eaton settled in at Dern and waited for U.S. reinforcements, with which he would march to Tripoli. While he waited, however, word reached him that the Bashaw had made peace with the Americans. Shocked by the fall of Dern, the Bashaw apparently feared Tripoli would be next and sued for peace, releasing the American prisoners under excellent terms. In fact, the terms were considered more favorable and more honorable than any peace obtained by any Christian nation with a Barbary Regency at any period within a hundred years. Jefferson's little war had been a smashing success. Meanwhile, back in 1804, while Stephen Decatur and his men were assaulting Tripoli, Jefferson had commissioned an expedition of the West. When Jefferson took over the presidency, the national debt was $112 million, primarily from the federal assumption of state debts. A plan was formed to pay off the debt, and thanks to an upsurge in exports, largely due to the peace achieved with France, the debt was going to be paid down much faster than expected. That left the federal government in a good financial position. France was not in as good of a position. Napoleon Bonaparte was fighting a war with much of Europe and was desperate for capital to finance it. The United States offered to purchase western lands that had recently been returned to France's control from the Spanish. The lands, known as the Louisiana Territory, encompassed 828,000 square miles, or 529,920,000 acres, from the Mississippi River and west to the Rocky Mountains, encompassing land currently, making up portions of 15 U.S. states and parts of Canada. Jefferson paid 15 million U.S. dollars, or 68 million francs for the land, in both cash and cancellation of debts. That amounts to roughly $274,792,275 today, adjusted for inflation. That comes out to less than $0.52 cents per acre in today's dollars. In other words, it was a steal. Jefferson had selected Meriwether Lewis to lead the expedition to explore the new territory and find a route to the Pacific Ocean. Lewis was Jefferson's personal secretary. An army veteran from Jefferson's home county, Lewis had a knowledge of the West, Indian culture and manners, and of the army that Jefferson believed would be invaluable. 
Lewis asked his friend William Clark, who had served alongside him in the army, to help lead the expedition. The two men and their party, calling themselves the Corps of Discovery, set out on the Missouri River from a camp near St. Louis on May 21, 1804, on the great expedition through the Western Territory. The object of your mission, Jefferson wrote to Lewis and Clark, is to explore the Missouri River and such principal stream of it as, by its course and communication with the waters of the Pacific Ocean, may offer the most direct and practicable water communication across this continent for the purpose of commerce. However, Jefferson was also hopeful that the explorers would make wonderful new discoveries, such as volcanoes, mountains of salt, or perhaps even a woolly mammoth. Lewis, Clark, and their team followed the Missouri River in a large 55-foot keelboat and two smaller boats. While Clark spent most of his time on the boat preparing charts and maps, Lewis walked along the shore searching for scientific discoveries and collecting specimens. By the end of July, they had traveled several hundred miles up the river, but to everyone's disappointment, they had not met a single Indian. That would soon change. On the second day of August, a group of Indians met the explorers as they were making camp on the banks of the river, just before the sun disappeared. The Indians were from the Otto and Missouri tribes, and Lewis and Clark were relieved to find they were very friendly. The expedition set out again, continuing their journey along the Missouri River. Weeks passed without incident, but then, on August 20th, Sergeant Charles Floyd began to complain about sharp pains in the area of his abdomen. Before the sun had set, Floyd was dead from appendicitis. He was the first American soldier to die west of the Mississippi. The others buried him on the bluff, with his name and date of death carved into a wooden post marking his grave. The next week, the expedition reached the Great Plains, a bountiful land filled with all sorts of game, including elk, deer, and bison. This was the land of the Lakota Indian tribes, or Sioux as the Americans called them. The Sioux were an extremely powerful tribe, and President Jefferson had expressed a strong desire that the Corps make a good impression on them. The Corps soon met the Yankton Sioux. They were friendly, but warned the explorers that the Teton Sioux, a tribe that lived further up the river, would not be as peaceful as they. Sure enough, the Corps was stopped along the river by a more hostile Teton Sioux. Clark and some men went ashore with gifts for them. He brought a medal, a coat, and a hat. The Sioux were not impressed with these trinkets and demanded that the white men give them a boat to pay for passage along the river. Clark refused, and the Indians became very hostile. Clark drew his sword, and Lewis manned the swivel gun on the keelboat. Sensing that they were outgunned, the Sioux decided to back away, and the Americans quickly scrambled back on their boats to continue up the river as fast as they could. By October, it began to snow and the expedition decided it would be wise to build winter quarters as they were very far north and the winter would be brutal. They also feared that they would need to defend themselves against hostile Sioux raids. Thus, they constructed a fort near the Mandan Indian villages. The fort was completed by the end of November. Ice covered the fort and the temperatures grew so cold that the guards on duty had to be relieved every half hour for fear the men might freeze to death. The ice on the river was so thick that herds of bison could cross without it cracking. Starvation was a serious concern, 
but they had befriended the Mandan and Hidatsa tribes, who traded with them and showed them how to hunt bison. Among the Hidatsa tribe, the Americans met a fur trapper named Toussaint Charbonneau and his teenaged Indian wife, Sacagawea. The young Indian woman had been captured by the Hidatsa war party, and Charbonneau had won her in a game of chance. Lewis and Clark decided to hire them as guides and interpreters, and when the expedition left the fort that spring, the couple and their baby boy went with them. When the river thawed, Lewis and Clark sent a dozen of their men back east on the keelboat to deliver a report, maps, and hundreds of plant and mineral specimens to President Jefferson. Down their largest boat, the men carved six new canoes for the journey into territory that no American had ever set foot in. The land they were entering was inhabited by grizzly bears, a predator larger than any the explorers had ever seen. The natives had warned them about these giant bears, which were so ferocious that before hunting them, the warriors painted themselves as if they were going to battle. The bear's sharp black claws were as treasure to the natives as an enemy's scalp. The explorers largely dismissed the warnings. They had seen lots of bears and did not realize how gigantic and ferocious the grizzly actually was. Besides, unlike the Indians, the white men had guns. Their overconfidence vanished on April 29, 1805. The men had seen a pair of the giant beasts and fired at them, wounding one who fled. The other grizzly turned toward the men and charged straight at Lewis. Lewis panicked and ran as fast as he could as the men reloaded their single-shot rifles. The monster bear was just a few yards from Lewis when a shot rang out, dropping the bear. They realized later that the one that charged Lewis was only half-grown. The next month, just as the expedition was nearing the Rocky Mountains, the boat carrying Sacagawea was turned on its side by a gust of wind, dumping the crew and the Indian girl into the cold water, along with supplies and journals. As the men righted the boat, Sacagawea quickly retrieved the supplies and journal, saving most of them. Lewis and Clark were excited when the Rocky Mountains finally came into view, but their excitement evaporated when they realized how much more difficult passage would be. The river was much shallower, and the rocks jutted up everywhere. In June, the expedition came to a fork in the river. They wanted to remain on the Missouri, but they were unsure if it was the northern or southern branch. Lewis had been told by the Indians that the Great Falls were on the Missouri River, and knew that if he could find them, they'd be on the right path. So, Leaving Clark and most of the others behind, Lewis and three men set out on the southern branch to determine if it was the correct river. Days later, Lewis and his men became the first whites to ever see the Great Falls. There were five falls in all, stretching out for 12 miles, and Lewis realized it was going to take a longer time than they had planned to sail around them. Lewis and his men returned to the camp and retrieved the rest of the corps. They started out again on the southern branch toward the falls. It took them a month to navigate around the Great Falls. Once on the other side, they continued their journey toward the Rockies. The mountains loomed high, and the closer the expedition got, the more formidable they appeared. The party would have to pass over the mountains on horseback, 
to the Columbia River on the other side. The Hadatsa Indians had told them that they could trade for horses with the Shoshone tribe, but the expedition had yet to find the elusive tribe. Finally, they came upon the tribe in August. A lone brave had spotted their expedition on the river and took them to the chief. The chief eyed these outsiders suspiciously at first, but then heard a familiar voice call his name. He turned to see his sister, Sacagawea, with the white men. She helped Lewis and Clark barter with the Shoshone for horses. The Shoshone also told the explorers of a trail that would lead them through the mountains. The climb through the Rockies was treacherous, and food supplies were running low. Snow was beginning to fall, and they knew that they had to get through the mountains before they were trapped up there, where they would surely all die during the winter. As they crossed through, they were forced to eat some of their horses. Eventually, they made it to the other side of the mountains where they met the Nez Perce tribe and were able to trade for food. Once down the mountains, they reached the Columbia River, built some canoes, and set out for the Pacific in mid-October. A month later, the Corps of Discovery finally reached the Pacific. They built a fort on the coast and spent the winter there. It rained on them the entire season. They hoped that they would meet a ship that traded with the Indians at the mouth of the river that could take them home. But they never saw one. The only one that came left without the Indians letting the explorers know it was there. After trading with the Walla Walla tribe for horses, the men started back over the mountains at the end of March. They got stuck in the Bitterroot Valley with the Nez Perce tribe while waiting for the snow to melt. In June, they were able to start again with Indian guides to lead them through the deep snow passes. Lewis and Clark decided to split up and do some more exploration before returning home. Half the men went with Clark heading south for the Yellowstone River and half went with Lewis north to the Moraes River. While Lewis and his men tried to navigate around the Great Falls, they were noticed by Blackfoot Indians. At first, the Indians appeared friendly, but before they left, they tried to steal some rifles from the white men. The Americans shot two Blackfeet, killing them. The explorers fled, fearful that the entire tribe would soon be after them. Lewis and his men covered over a hundred miles in one day as they escaped the Blackfeet. At the same time, Clark and his men crossed the Continental Divide into Crow Indian territory. They had heard of the Crows' reputation as expert horse thieves, and sure enough, while they slept, the Indians stole all of their horses, yet they never saw a single crow. A month later, Clark's men were out hunting for food. There was a rustle in the bushes, and one of the men aimed his rifle. He saw a shape that he thought was an elk. He took careful aim and squeezed the trigger. The man's eyes flew open in panic as he heard a man's voice scream out in pain. He rushed to the bushes to find that he had shot Lewis, whose group was making its way to rendezvous with them. Luckily, the bullet had passed through the thigh and would not be fatal. Despite the wound, Lewis was happy to see Clark and his men. They soon reached the Missouri River, and this time they would have the current at their back. It was a quick journey back to the Mandan village. They stayed long enough for Lewis's leg to heal, and then on August 17th, left once more. Sacagawea stayed behind. As they continued south, the expedition sailed back into Sioux territory. 
As they stared up at the riverbanks, they saw armed Indians mounted on horseback taunting them. The expedition made it through the area without incident, however, and they continued home. On September 23, 1806, after nearly two and a half years, the Corps of Discovery finally returned to St. Louis. The entire town came out to greet them, and gun salutes were fired over the river. They had lost only one man, Sergeant Floyd, during the most famous exploration in American history. Before we continue, I wanted to pause and take a moment to thank you for listening to this podcast. I realize that you have a lot of options to occupy your time, and I'm truly grateful and humbled that you chose Home of the Brave. As you can imagine, it has taken a lot of time, energy, and money to create a podcast such as this, and I really need your support. Please share it with your friends, subscribe, and write a review. Also, I'd like to ask you to purchase the ebook that this podcast is based on. You can find Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic by Christopher Vale, that's V-A-L-E, at Amazon.com or on my website at ChristopherVale.net. I have two more books that I hope to write and record as podcasts to tell the story of America up through the end of the Cold War but I won't be able to do so without your generous support. Thank you again. And now, back to Home of the Brave. Meanwhile, back east, tragedy was about to strike. Rivalries had been flaming among the revolutionary generation, especially between Alexander Hamilton and Jefferson's vice president, Aaron Burr. Hamilton had once said of Burr, Mr. Burr will surely arrive at the presidency. Nobody conducts better than him a political intrigue. Hamilton had a slew of political enemies, most especially Jefferson, his main political rival. But he reserved a very special disdain for Burr, finding him devoid of any principles. Hamilton once remarked that Burr was a man whose only political principle is to mount at all events to the highest political honors of the nation and as much further as circumstances will carry him. Hamilton considered him despotic and beyond redemption. Hamilton had been bad-mouthing Burr for 15 years, and recently, Hamilton had attacked Burr's qualifications once again during the New York governor's race. Burr had been dropped from Jefferson's presidential ticket in 1804 and had sought the governorship of his home state. He lost badly. Burr blamed Hamilton for his loss, and he had finally had enough of Hamilton's insults to his character. In June of 1804, Burr demanded an apology from Hamilton for a letter that had been published a couple of months earlier. The letter stemmed from a dinner that Dr. Charles Cooper had attended in March of that same year at the home of his father-in-law, Judge John Taylor. Hamilton and fellow Federalist Judge James Kent were among the guests attending the dinner. The topic of conversation soon turned to Aaron Burr's run for governor. Dr. Cooper despised Burr and was delighted to listen to such illustrious men as Hamilton and Kent denounce him. Excited by the conversation, Dr. Cooper wrote his friend Andrew Brown relating that Hamilton had called Burr a dangerous man and one who ought not to be trusted. Excerpts of the letter appeared in the New York Evening Post. The publishing of the letter 
caused quite a scandal as Hamilton had pledged to remain neutral in the race for governor. In an attempt at damage control, Hamilton's father-in-law, Philip Schuler, responded with a letter of his own, reasserting Hamilton's pledge of neutrality and implying that Dr. Cooper invented the entire story. Cooper took offense and published another letter, this time directed at Schuler, writing that Cooper could detail to you a still more despicable opinion which General Hamilton has expressed of Mr. Burr. When Burr read these letters, he was furious and demanded to know whether Hamilton had indeed called him despicable, and if so, what was meant by it? Hamilton responded to Burr that he could not be expected to remember every negative thing he had said about every political opponent over the past 15 years. Even if he could, how could he ever know what inferences others might draw from it? What really prevented Hamilton from apologizing, however, was that he believed everything he said about Aaron Burr was true. That was the final straw for Burr. He had had enough of Hamilton's insults and slanders. Since Hamilton would neither apologize nor disavow what was written, Burr felt he had no choice but to call him out. Thus, Burr challenged Hamilton to a duel, a practice that was outlawed in many states, including their home state of New York. Burr certainly could have sued Hamilton for libel instead, but that was considered ungentlemanly. In fact, Hamilton himself looked down on libel suits, stating that he preferred repaying hatred with contempt. The time and date for the duel was set for 7 o'clock on the morning of Wednesday, July 11, 1804. Burr rose before dawn after a night sleeping on the couch in his library. He quickly dressed in black pantaloons, pulled half-boots over his feet, and threw on a dark coat. He skipped breakfast due to a common fear of the time that a full belly would make any infection from a stomach wound spread more quickly. He and his second, William P. Van Ness, walked down to the Hudson River where a boat was waiting for them. Since dueling was illegal in New York, the men were rowed across the Hudson River in a little boat to Weehawken, New Jersey, just on the other side of the river. On the far side of the river, they were greeted by a sheer cliff but there was a little ledge about 10 feet wide and 40 feet long. That would be the place of the duel. Burr and Van Ness unloaded from the boat and climbed up to the ledge. They made sure it was clear of rocks and debris and then waited for Hamilton. Hamilton arrived considerably later than Burr, accompanied by his friend Nathaniel Pendleton and his physician, Dr. David Hossack, who would be serving as physician for both Hamilton and Burr during the duel. Hamilton and Pendleton climbed up to the ledge where Burr and Van Ness awaited them, while the doctor stayed at the edge of the river with the boatman. The pistols both sides had agreed to use were not unfamiliar to either man. They belonged to Hamilton's brother-in-law, who had used one to shoot a button off of Burr's coat in a duel five years earlier. They had been used a second time when Hamilton's eldest son was killed in a duel in 1801 in the same location he and Burr were using. The pistols were large, heavy, and extremely inaccurate. Burr and Hamilton met in the middle of the little ledge, staring at one another. They were both short men. Hamilton, at just five foot seven, was an inch taller than Burr. It was explained that each man would take ten paces, turn, present arms, and then fire. 
If one man fired first and the other was still standing, Pendleton would count to three. If the second man did not fire by the time the count was finished, he would lose his chance. The men counted off ten paces, but before Pendleton gave the command to present, Hamilton asked for a moment to put on his glasses. Burr waited patiently until Hamilton had adjusted the spectacles on his nose. Once Hamilton was ready, Pendleton gave the command to present. Hamilton fired first, but the shot went high, snapping a little twig above Burr's head. Burr waited just a few seconds for Pendleton to begin counting, but the man did not. Burr then took aim and fired. Hamilton fell to the ground. The ball had struck him on the right, bouncing off a rib, fracturing his rib cage, and then up through his liver and diaphragm before splintering and lodging into his vertebrae. The doctor did not even have a chance to examine the patient before Hamilton told him that the wound was mortal. Burr was shocked. He rushed toward Hamilton as Pendleton cried out for the doctor. Van Ness moved in to intercept Burr. I must go and speak to him, Burr insisted, but Van Ness would not allow it. He whisked Burr away, back to the boat, and across the Hudson to New York. When Dr. Hossack reached him, Hamilton declared, This is a mortal wound, doctor. A quick examination convinced Hossack that his patient was correct. Pendleton and Dr. Hossack carried Hamilton down to his boat. As Hamilton was rowed back across the river, he cautioned the others in the boat to take care of that pistol. It is undischarged and still cocked. It may go off and do harm. He apparently did not realize he had even fired the weapon. He then added that Pendleton knows I did not intend to fire at him. Once back in New York, Hamilton was carried to the nearby house of a friend where he died soon after. The people of New York went mad after hearing that Hamilton had been killed and Burr was forced to flee the city for his life. Despite all the witnesses swearing that Burr had been a gentleman and conducted himself in accord with the Code Duello, crazy rumors began to spread. Popular consensus was that Burr had murdered Hamilton in cold blood. And one newspaper even claimed that Burr had worn a special dueling suit which deflected bullets. The truth is even stranger. What actually happened is a mystery that has eluded historians for more than 200 years. The account of the duel that I recited above is the most widely accepted, though, truth be told, no one actually knows for sure who fired first, nor whether either man was really attempting to kill the other. After all, there was a reason that dueling pistols were generally heavy and inaccurate. The goal was normally to seek an honorable end to a dispute, Rarely did the men actually desire to kill one another after initial tempers had subsided. The night before the duel, Hamilton had written a personal statement, averring that he did not intend to fire at Burr. I have resolved, he wrote, if our interview is conducted in the usual manner, and it pleases God to give me the opportunity to reserve and throw away my first fire, and I have thoughts even of reserving my second fire, and thus giving a double opportunity to Colonel Burr to pause and reflect. Hamilton was gambling then that by holding his fire, Burr would also determine not to kill him. Hamilton had fired, though. All witnesses agreed that two distinct shots were fired, 
about four or five seconds apart. The witnesses were unsure about who fired first, however, and the pro-Hamilton position soon became that Burr had fired first, and once struck by the ball, Hamilton had accidentally pulled the trigger, firing into the ground. As evidence, they relied on Hamilton's warning to the oarsman that his pistol was still cocked and loaded. Furthermore, while being rowed back to New York, Hamilton, in a bout of consciousness, muttered to the doctor that Pendleton knows I did not mean to fire at Colonel Burr the first time. There are problems with this story, however. One, the branch above Burr's head was clearly snapped by the ball from Hamilton's shot. Second, Van Ness had originally believed Burr had been struck by the ball when he twitched at the first shot. Burr claimed he had stepped on a rock. Third, if Hamilton did not intend to fire, why did he delay the duel to put on his glasses? The truth might be that Hamilton had originally thought to reserve his shot, but once there decided to fire, yet intentionally missed Burr, firing over the top of his head. Burr then returned fire. But did Burr mean to kill Hamilton? It is more likely he simply meant to wound him, as a fair warning. When asked if having one doctor at the duel would suffice, Burr had replied yes, and added, even that is unnecessary. As historian Joseph Ellis points out in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Founding Brothers, the meaty part of the hip was a favorite target of duelers wanting to inflict a graze or flesh wound. Burr missed inflicting a mere flesh wound by only two inches. The duel was a major event in United States history for a couple of reasons. It was the first, and one of the only, times political opponents had used violence against one another. In most other countries following a revolution, violence against political opponents had been the rule, not the exception. Also, the death of Hamilton and the self-exile of Burr removed two prominent members of the revolutionary generation before either had even turned 50. Who knows how the fabric of the Republic might have changed if both men had remained active. I've already reported how Hamilton considered Burr a threat to the Republic but many believed the same about Hamilton. John Adams despised Alexander Hamilton, not only for what he considered his low moral character, but also as a threat to American democracy. While Hamilton had warned Congress that Burr was an American Catiline, Adams strongly believed Hamilton's political ambitions rivaled those of Napoleon Bonaparte. Adams often compared the similarities of the two former revolutionary generals from their lowly island births to their unbridled political ambitions. And Adams swore Hamilton aimed at commanding the whole Union. Abigail Adams agreed with her husband, stating that Hamilton would become a second Bonaparte if he was possessed of equal power. Thus, perhaps there was some element of projection in Hamilton's characterization of Burr as an American Catiline. However, that does not mean his assessment of his future killer was inaccurate. Aaron Burr did not completely disappear from the pages of history following his escape from New York. Instead, he went west, seeking to carve out an empire for himself. In 1806, Jefferson received word that his former vice president was recruiting men and gathering arms. A message was sent from General Wilkinson in New Orleans. This is indeed a deep, dark, and widespread conspiracy the general wrote, and I fear it will receive strong support in New Orleans. 
Wilkinson himself was a scoundrel, on the payroll of the Spanish, who had flirted with the idea of joining Burr's conspiracy. Ultimately, however, he thought it more prudent to inform the president. In 1807, Jefferson received papers incriminating Burr and forwarded them to Congress. The president was legitimately concerned for the fate of the Union and sought the power to put down any insurrection. Jefferson went after Aaron Burr with as much force as he could, and by March, the former vice president was under arrest. Burr was charged with treason against the United States and transported to Richmond, Virginia for trial. Unfortunately for Jefferson, the case against Burr was weak, and he was ultimately acquitted. Following the trial, Burr left the United States for Europe. He found little success there, and in 1812, returned to New York City to practice law. He died in relative obscurity in 1836. While Jefferson was dealing with sedition and insurrection from his former vice president, across the Atlantic, Napoleon Bonaparte, now the emperor of France, was crushing his military rivals on the European continent. To stop goods and supplies from reaching France, the British imposed a blockade of northern Europe. By 1807, the British had begun to demand that any neutral party, such as America, that wanted to sell through European waters for trade purposes would have to pay a duty to the British crown. In June of that year, the British ship HMS Leopard attacked and captured the USS Chesapeake off the coast of Virginia, crippling the American ship. The Chesapeake suffered several casualties, and some of its sailors, three black men, who had deserted from the British Navy, were even taken by the British to be pressed into service of the Royal Navy. Another sailor, a British citizen who had joined the Americans, was hanged for treason. Americans howled for war, and Congress was ready and willing to declare it. Jefferson was more cautious, however. Realizing that much of his fleet was still patrolling the Mediterranean against the Barbary pirates, and fearing the United States military was not prepared to fight the British, he was reluctant to engage. Jefferson knew that an attack on an American vessel and the impressment of U.S. sailors into the British Navy could not go unanswered. He was, however, at a loss as to exactly what to do about it. James Madison, who was serving as Jefferson's Secretary of State, suggested that they use the same tactic that had worked so well before the Revolution, boycott British goods. Jefferson was skeptical that an embargo would work, but he agreed to try it. The presidential election was the following year, and Jefferson, following the example set by Washington, declined to seek re-election to a third term. James Madison was elected president in 1808, and Jefferson was happy to allow the problem of dealing with British aggression to fall to him. Madison would indeed deal with the British in an often forgotten war that began in 1812 and at the time was thought of by many as America's second war of independence. Thank you for listening to Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic. For notes and citations, or to support this podcast, please purchase the ebook available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com. <laughs>